Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Osiris. Hey, this is Oteal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. Welcome back to Comes a Time. That right there is my friend Oteal. And that is my friend Mike. We had a mighty good one this time. Yeah, buddy. Jerry Grillo, he wrote a biography about Colonel Bruce Hampton. And man, uh, yeah, just brought back so many memories talking to him. And wow, we could, we went, what was it, almost two hours? (laughs) Pretty dang long. But it could have been, I feel like that's chapter one though, you know, like. For sure. I was like, Mike's got to pee now, doesn't he? No, I'm actually (laughs) fine. Thank you, though. I, uh, <laughs> you know, what's interesting. It's always kind of cool to hear any, anyone who's had a mentor can like gets it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That person that like likes you and trusts you and knows you have something that's like worth investing in. And you just jive on all you eat with this person, you travel with this person, you deal with flight delays with this person, you like and you just become you have that bond that you experience the weirdest shit and it's cool to hear stories from people who have like you know who have that <laughs> feel bad for people who don't yeah i really do too it's something that takes a lot of time sometimes you can you got to wait on it yeah. plants bloom when they bloom and and it could come late i got lucky totally. i wonder who you know i often wonder with the colonel because he was such a, a extraterrestrial i'm like where is the, I know there's another one out there. Like, yeah, there's, uh, so I'm, I'm always on the lookout for that crazy ET guy that uh, is yeah. masquerading as a human. Like, Bruce kind of looked like a homeless person. You know, when, when, uh, when our percussionist, the count who recently just passed away, God rest his soul. Um, he had been told about the Colonel and he, was invited to play and he set up his drums early and he came in and Colonel Bruce was like tapping his drums and stuff. And, and he thought Colonel was a homeless person. He almost went and kicked his ass. He said, get that off my drums. What are you doing? He's like, Oh, I'm the Colonel. I'm sorry. You know, (laughs) you know, um, that's so fucking cool. And it's so funny that you mentioned that, like he looked homeless because like, and I don't mean this negatively about, Dave Attell, but he walks around New York City 
in the winter time, he'll have one of those like do rags, <laughs> right? Really? Underneath a black umpire's like baseball hat and then a knit winter hat over that. And he gets on stage and he like takes all his hats off slowly. And it's just like, what on earth? And and the, the thing that's interesting, right? Like, so passing the comedy seller is obviously a big deal as a comic. The first time I ever hosted there, and it's nerve wracking because you don't want to blow it. You want to make sure, you know, you like it's a hard job to host because you have to like let the comics know like your time is up in two minutes. Wrap it up. You got to go up, get off, keep the thing going. It's my first gig ever there was hosting and Jeff Ross and Dave Attell go on stage at the end of the show and roast the crowd. And I'm a fan. And I'm like watching this and I'm like, I can't even believe. And then little by little, Attell would start bringing me up on stage when I was hosting. He'd be like, Mike, come up and hang out for a minute. And they'd like turn on another microphone and it would just be him and I. And I didn't know we were going to be doing that. And now I'm roasting the crowd with Dave and I would just be trying to make him laugh. And it was it was terrifying because he would just throw out all these yell out your drink. I'm going to tell you how your night's going to end, you know, and like shit like that. <laughs> That's great. But, but what he was, you know, what I realized was like he was just seeing if I could handle it. Right. And then yeah. he started bringing me out on the road and we would be doing that in front of, you know, big crowds or full road clubs or whatever. And it was just like just having that like I. I don't know. There's something so important about a mentor and, and it's so neat to have that, that relationship with one. So this was an incredible, you know, conversation. And I'm always interested as a writer to kind of like, how did Jerry go about a biography seems like such a, such a daunting task, yeah, especially about someone like him. Yeah. Where there's just the shit so you didn't many. Even know if it's true. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking about his different sides, like his yeah, sports side. You know, he ran me around the tennis court like crazy with a big old beer belly. Yeah, like he told would just me. Yeah, yeah, he would hit the ball and it'd be going this way and it would drop and just go like that. And I was huffing and puffing. I was like 24 in great shape. So he's like an amazing golfer. He has this whole sports thing. He's got the whole music thing. He's got the whole just et thing it's just like he's crazy man really crazy yeah but it's uh, really wild but this was cool yeah (laughs) we hope that you guys uh you know check out the book do you remember the name of the book oh god it's It's a a really long title yeah he's guys look in the the liner notes yeah it's it's in the liner notes we'll have it there the music and mythocracy of colonel bruce hampton basically frightened what no basically true what was it? No, that's I think the it was like a the basically true biography. A basically said, true by yeah, <laughs> yeah, something like that. Jerry's awesome, and he was a he was a really uh, interesting guy to listen to. So thank you, Jerry, for for yeah. joining us, and thanks everyone for listening uh, here on Osiris Network. Go to osirispod.com for all the amazing podcasts. Um, check us out on Patreon, and O'Teal and I have some plans for some pretty cool. Uh, offerings to our listeners uh that we're super excited about and also what else are we super excited about oteal garcia one of our sponsors garcia handpicked cannabis if they are in your area folks go get it uh it's great product it's the man uh today we're recording this on his death day 
And I'd like to ask you, well, so anyway, GarciaHandpick.com, phenomenal cannabis, great products. Jerry's Picks are these little gummies that are shaped in, there's no, like, like charts with the music charts as like in the, you know, inside the, the liner of the packaging. It's all just so cool. I want to ask you, do you remember where you were when you found out Jerry died? No, because I wasn't like a huge fan at the time. I do remember um, I was with, I'm pretty sure I was with Colonel Bruce. I remember all the people around me. Like I remember that time and so, you know, obviously so many, uh, just in the jam band scene, there's like so many deadheads. Mm -hmm. And I remember just how shook everybody was. It was really, really um, sad. I felt really bad for everyone, you know? Yeah. I really did. I could tell, like, it was such a blow. And, yeah, it was that was a really sad time, man. So many people just crushed, you know? And even though I I didn't know a lot about it, I could feel... I could feel the, uh, you know, people always talk about where, you know, where they were when Kennedy was killed or Martin Luther King, you know, and it was like, I knew it was a cult thing, but it felt almost that big, you know? Yeah. It was a sad day. It was terrible. Yeah. Where was I? Thanks for throwing it back to me, Oteil. I was, um, (laughs) I figured you would tell. I was kidding. I was getting ready for work and my mom came up to my room with a coffee cup and she was crying and she goes, someone you love died. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. is it my grandfather? Like I was freaking like nervous about that. And she goes, Jerry Garcia. And I'm like, bullshit. Now I thought she Mm -hmm. had made this up because I had tickets to my first dead show in September of 95 Boston garden. And I thought she just didn't want me to go and that she was saying that he died. And I'm like, that's bullshit. There's no way. I'm not, I don't believe you. And she's like, I'm really sorry. And I turned on the local rock station, 99 Rock WPLR, New Haven. And they were playing Ship of Fools on the radio. And that's not a dead song you'd hear on the radio. So when anybody's playing like obscure tunes, you're like, ah, shit. And then the guy came on, Mike Lapatino, and he goes, very sad day in the music world. We lost Jerry Garcia. Today we're going to dedicate the whole. And I just lost it, man. Mm. I was like, you got to be kidding. My walls were covered with Jerry. Some people had like Daryl Strawberry and Michael Jordan. Yeah. And yeah. I had Jerry and Pig, you know. And yeah. um, I went to work helping my uncle build his house. He hates the dead. He's like that fat idiot, whatever. Who cares? He wow. was a Bruce fan. And my parents, my mom picks me up from work with a brand new little puppy. And that was like my, like, we hope you feel better. Wow. Uh, and I had a tiny little dog and uh, my little sister wouldn't let me name him Garcia. Cause we already had a fish named Garcia. <laughs> and she said that was her rule was you can't have two pets with the same name. So I named him Casey Jones. And that was the first dog I ever had. And ever since then I've named all my dogs, after Grateful Dead songs, and I'm now up to Cosmic Charlie. <laughs> but uh, that was wow, the day. So and it, he died before you saw your first Dead show? Yeah. Damn, dude. Yeah. I had tickets. I was 15 when he died. 
I was wow. 15. And you know what, though? I've kind of almost, uh, I don't know if I made peace with it this way, but I think it kept something m- mythical about yeah. it because I was listening to The Grateful Dead since I was like, shit, eight or whatever, wow. nine with on my dad's records. But the thing is, is that like I kind of, I pictured an older, like a, a younger, by older, I mean older yeah earlier years but um it was always just something that like i I don't know man i mean would it have been as special he was sick as shit yeah you know like so for me it's kind of oh it's a thing that's always stayed pure and lucid you know what i mean and and it it wasn't ever ruined by a crowd or whatever maybe that's just how i tell myself it's okay but uh no, something I made up for it with yeah. fish, I think. <laughs> some you things know? are like that. I feel that way about Colonel Bruce's birthday. Like I wasn't able to be there. I had a gig with Johnny Vidakovich and John Medeski, two of his absolute favorites. Wow. In New Orleans. Whoa, really? Yeah. At Amazing. Jazz Fest, I think it was. And um I couldn't get out of the gig. But I don't think I don't know if, if I would have been able to deal with him dying. You know, like I almost think it was better that I didn't see it. Yeah. Just like yeah. with your thing with. I think know, it's better like, I didn't see the dead. I, I do. I mean, I would have loved it, know. of course. I mean, it would have been like, a, yeah. it's something, I, I mean, I, there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, I had the tickets to go to September 95 Boston Garden and I was so, and it was, it was one month before he died. Wow. You know? Wow. So it never happened. But that that winter, December 2nd, 95, I saw my first fish show. And then it was all from there, you know? But yeah. uh, you were 15 yeah, then. Oh, boy. Yeah. Ooh, I was just man, a little tight. old. I had a lot of hair, O'Teal. <laughs> we need the pictures, brother. We need oh, the I got them. I'll show you. I will show you. But this was, uh, listen, I mean, we can't not mention how important Jerry is and he always will be. And I love that it only gets bigger and brighter like Bruce. And uh, they both left their, you know, mark on, on our world. So thank you to both of them. And, and thanks to for Jerry listening. Grillo. And to Jerry Grillo. And to you, O'Teal. <laughs> and to you too, man. Peace, everybody. And to you listeners. Thank you. Enjoy. It's good to see you, buddy. You too, man. How you been? You, uh, how's touring? Uh, we're not touring yet. I'd leave on Friday. Okay. Looking forward to so. it. We're recording this on the day of uh, Jerry Garcia's death. This is the end of the days between, but when you're a deadhead, that never ends. No, this is, yeah, this has been, this has been a heavy day. I'll tell you that it's been, and this is weird. It took me a while more in tune with, you know, with Jerry's birthday because um, in the past, and I'd mentioned my son's allegiance there, uh, we, you know, we studied up. Right. And so, but, but of course I knew that he died on this date. And, um, and a lot of heavy shit was happening today and I didn't put two and two together until I sat down and took stock of what the date was. And, um, meanwhile, all this heavy shit had happened, not pleasant stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and then I realized later, well, that in some ways that's okay. I mean, you know, that's life and that, um, and that's okay. I, I came back to remembering the day and you know what else I did guys? I looked back at the show you did a year ago. You recorded a year ago 
today with Steve Parrish. I think he was, I think he oh. recorded it on the same day. Yeah, and, that's um, awesome. I hadn't watched that one yet and it was great. And I love, see, he's like, he's like my favorite guy in the band, but um, <laughs> I, I do, I love the band, but I mean, he, I've always yeah. really been a fan of, of Parrish and he talked about Bruce. He did, he had some interesting things to say about Bruce. Uh, O'Till, you might have know this. You know this better than I do. But he, I thought he said that Bruce was really tight with Pigpen early on, like back mm-hmm. in the day when they met. He was closer to Pigpen and Pigpen's dad or something. Yeah, that was. Uh, they had that uh, thing in common because you know Bruce came from like this straight military family, but he was into that old black music, you know, and Pigpen's dad. I guess had a R and B radio show or something. Yeah, San Francisco, like so an they, old blues radio show. Yeah, so they connected on that level, which <laughs> makes perfect sense. When you think, can you imagine the two of them in 1969? What that was like, that kind of energy that the two of them together. Oh my you know, god! What's fascinating to me about that is there's young baby Bruce, you know, going up to you know Pigpen or Pigpen's dad or, and saying something like oh, Leo you know and then guess <laughs> because he was doing it back then I found oh, yeah. out he was doing it when he was like 20 <laughs> yeah I asked him when did I said when did it hit you like when did you shift from a human to this ET thing and I think he said he was either six years old or nine years old and it hit him like a ton of bricks and he was some on some restaurant on Ponce de Leon where they have the we ate there. What's the name of that place where the women have bouffant hair and all that stuff? And he said he jumped up on the table and he went, "You're all crazy. You're all dead people." It's just like wow, you know, at six oh, years like, old. The, uh, so the I think it, grill was it the blue ribbon grill? No, uh, what was it? That might have been it. But I there's a yeah, what's that? We ate there, not Mary Mac. What's the name of the dog on play? Anyway, the, the thing that surprised me was just that it, it hit him all at once. Wow. You know, it was just like, and he was like, oh, crap. You know, like, You're I was like, wow, people. what a what a heavy, like the curtain being torn, you know, for nine years old. Like, wow. Yeah, and he just like it. hit the on-ramp. It was a short on-ramp. <laughs> and, he went and, he, yeah, and he stayed on that. That's pretty yeah. heavy. Jerry, where, where did your path cross his? Um, my path, it first crossed his, you know, in a very distant way. When I was in high school, 1977 or 78, um, and uh, a friend of mine had a copy of Music to Eat, which was Bruce's mm. uh, first band, the Hampton Grease Band. He was the, the front man of, thus, you know, Hampton. And, uh, and he... <coughs> He, uh, this album was renowned for how terrible it sold, but it's really a pretty cool album. And there are parts of it that even Bruce would say, you know, and laughingly and proudly, it's like, you know, having your fingernails on a chalkboard. But some of it is just amazing fusion stuff. And my friend Brantley Lightfoot, who was a big music fan and turned me on to this. And it was like he, he shut the windows and turned the lights down. And it's like, I want you to hear something, you know, like, yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. Those people are important. <laughs> it really, and and Brantley and I are friends to this day. But he, you know, he knows more about music than you know than I ever will. But anyway, 
So that's when I first heard Bruce. And then I lost touch for many years until I think at the Aquarium Rescue Unit and heard them probably through my brother who turned me on to them, my little brother, actually, who was doing more stuff in Atlanta at the time and working in, you know, at bars and going to school and all of this. So, and even then I was out in the sticks. Bruce came to Saute Nacucci, Georgia, where I now live, <laughs> play a, a little mountain festival, thanks to the Reverend Jeff Mosier, who brought yeah. him up here in 2006, I think it was. And of course, I'd known who Bruce was all these years, but I finally got to meet him. And um, I think we went to lunch at maybe the second or third year he came up for this festival. I got the guts to really talk with him and we went out to lunch and um, he guessed my birthday. But the, the real connection was over baseball. He was asking these uh, trivia questions and I was nailing them because I'm pretty good with that stuff. And it was like and he tried to come up with stuff. And he would. He'd come up with one at invariably yeah. at every lunch that was ridiculous. You know, who had the highest batting average on Wednesdays in August? You know, <laughs> and yeah, he would know this. Stuff. And whether it was true or not, it was like it's amazing that he knew the guy's name. So we worked on that level and just stayed friends. And after a few years of this, you know, maybe, I think it was actually 2011 because um, I remember walking figure eights in the driveway where I could get a cell signal scared but asking Bruce can I write a book about you man and um you know has anybody ever done that and all that and he said he, here's what's funny he says yeah somebody did it and uh and he says but it was filled with all this crap about spies and flying objects in the sky and alien life forms and stuff he says it was awful and nothing ever came of it and I said not me I said I'm a real journalist I'm gonna ask you straight questions we're gonna get to the heart of things so let's sit down and talk so he says, all right. So I go to his house and he says, all right, Jerry, let me tell you about the spies and the flying objects <laughs> in the sky and the alien. And so it was like, oh, this guy, this is going to be fun. And so this went on until Bruce passed away, you know. Um, and then, of course, the book came out two years later. No, three years, more than that, four years or so. It took wow. a while to finish after Bruce passed. I was, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, geez. <laughs> When you said spies and aliens, I was like, oh, the autobiography. <laughs> I, yeah. like, I want to read that. That's what's so hilarious about, about him, too. It's like that would be the autobiography. And in some ways, he was the most level-headed person in the world. He was so far to the, to the spectrum that he was yeah. as close to normal as an insurance salesman, you know, and he knew it. <laughs> he was one of the most pragmatic people well, not not people, but thinkers, because like he wasn't a pragmatic doer, but he was an incredible critical thinker. Like he, you know, he had that capacity, but then it was just like, <laughs> just like I, I just God, I was never so bored so with him. You know, was Bruce like a guy that you could go to for advice? Would you, would you go like, hey, Bruce, I have a something I'm like stuck with and I need help on. And when he give would, you, yeah. I'm asking you, yeah, like, I don't know. And you know, you lived in a van with him forever. Oteil. I'm wondering like, That's were you a- able to go like, man, I'm kind of confused about this or whatever. And would he give you a straight answer or would he give you like a riddle that you one day, 10 years later figured out? He would give you both. I mean, I would get it on both levels. I guess it depends on what the moon was in, <laughs> you know, mm. but you would, I think you would be just as likely to get a straightforward pragmatic answer yeah. as to get the riddle. 
But a lot of times, like if he told you the riddle, it wasn't that hard to figure out, you know, like you'd be yeah. like, all right, I see what you're saying, you know. What, how I about you, that, Jerry? No, that's a great point. I, I hear what you say. There was a sense of that, and that, that pragmatism is a great way to describe somebody as cosmic as Bruce, too, because it's it's an ironic thing, but it totally fits. And But this idea of him, um, say, giving you the straight scoop on the advice or giving you something that you're going to have to think about or maybe it's even a joke, I think it depended on the ends that would the ends would justify the means. So with Bruce, it yeah. would be like, um, you know, if, if we need to do the pragmatic thing or this is about the, tonight's gig or this is about, you know, business or whatever, then I'm going to give you the straight stuff. Yes, O'Teal, you need to have an extra string on hand or whatever, you know, but but if it was something else, if you were after the gig and it was the hang and you were asking him advice about something more tangential or something, then he would give you some crazy, you know. <laughs> Well, Zambi said, you know, there's something that you'd have to think about or, or do <laughs> geometry, you know, with. <laughs> yeah. I used to listen to, well, I would do interviews with him sometimes. And man, the shit he would say to the interviewer, like we'd be live on the radio and the guy would ask him a question and he would just tell the most outrageous lie. Like, Jerry, I'm sure you heard about when he was uh, the Atlanta tour guide. And so like these people would come from Japan. Now, here's a guy that knew the actual history of Atlanta, like minutia that would just astound you, like with baseball statistics. Right. But he would just spin these outrageous lies about whatever they just happen to be passing on the bus, you know. That's great. And all these tourists that, you know, English wasn't their first language. I was just like, oh, my God. You know, but I've done driving around Atlanta with him that oh the cyclorama in 1860, whatever, you know, and he just starts. But I swear, man, if we had Google back then, If we could have Googled what he was saying, you'd just have been shocked. Yeah. Like how much of it was dead right? on. How you much, know? Especially the weirder stuff, the minutiae. Yes. That would be the stuff, you know, he would he would know the thing like, well, the manager of the Woolworths here on Ponce de Leon, he was known for being a volunteer fireman or something. He'd know that, and that would be the thing. But then he'd make up some crazy thing about, well, the Babe Ruth was mayor of the city or... or <laughs> Like creative nonfiction, I think Tom I Wolf it. called it. I love the the bus thing was perfect. Uh, Joe Zambi, who's a real guy, on which Bruce based his you know the Zambi stuff on. But Joe, he would introduce Joe as the governor of Georgia. You know, like <laughs> he pick up Joe is like pick, meeting him for lunch or something. So he'd pick him up on the corner of you know Peachtree and Tenth or something, and Joe would get on and now getting on the bus is the governor of Georgia. And <laughs> again, these were people who weren't from Atlanta or the U.S. mostly, and they'd be like, "Great, you know, we're meeting the governor." <laughs> or there's Margaret Mitchell cutting her lawn. He's like, there's Margaret Mitchell outside cutting her lawn, you know, and they'd be somewhere up in Buckhead, far from her house. People are taking <laughs> pictures of this poor lady cutting her uh, lawn. I remember him telling me about um, that he knew Hank Aaron, you know, and I'm like, mm, all right. You know, Bruce had a house Tuesday doing, but you know, that's about his mom. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Jesus. Dude, my heroes, he was like, uh, he introduced me. By the time he introduced me to like my third hero, I was like, there's no way these guys know Bruce. Bruce doesn't know. 
He totally you know, Treelock Gertu. He doesn't <laughs> know uh, Ralph Towner and John Abercrombie. Come on, man. You know, yes. so I've run into John Abercrombie at uh, at a NAMM show. And he's a very famous jazz guitarist for people that don't know who he is. And uh, and he looks just like Bruce, you know. And I said, and so, you know, it was so weird when I turn around and there's Abercrombie. So, like, here's my hero that played on these, you know, Billy Cobham records and all these different things. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, wow, you do look like Bruce. And he goes, oh, don't say that, man. <laughs> you know, like, because I, I said Colonel Bruce. I was like, wow, you do look like Colonel Bruce. He goes, oh, don't say that, man. I look that bad. You know? And I was like, wow, you do know him. Like, ah, you know, my brain's just like. <laughs> just so crazy, man. How did he know all these people? I mean, it just seems like he was somehow weirdly timeless. Like yeah, he lived a hundred. There was ten Bruces. Like you know, there ended yeah. up being a couple of uh, Gallagher's that were smashing watermelons. You know, remember really? that guy? There was yeah. Gallagher too. It was his brother. So I they would be on different really? coasts. Yeah, yeah, way before the internet could catch you doing that. Were shit. they twins? I think they had like wigs and whatever. That hair yeah. wasn't real. Because yeah. you know, Bruce had. He always said he had two birth certificates. Over it, right. yeah, right. that's right. He did, and it was how like, the hell does that one guy know? And and, and I didn't know you, your book confirmed for me the name because he said my my real name's Gustav Valentine Berglund the third. Yeah, and I was like, and I remembered it because it's so weird. Yes, you know. <laughs> and then you said it. I was like, oh my god, he was right about it. Was, you know what? that that uh that movie um basically frightened. Yes. I tell everybody, I'm like, you've got to watch this thing because yes. all the most outlandish or most of them, not the story of the sixes, which I have to ask you about later, but most of the the most far out and outlandish stories that he told me were all confirmed in that movie. Right. They're all and there. I was like, holy crap. And it's like told by the person involved Yes. In it. So it wasn't him telling it. It was the person he was talking about. Yes. And like the dude that signed him to the record deal, the Columbia that lost his job over, he starts crying <laughs> on yes. that. I was just like, that guy's amazing. Oh I love that guy, Tom. Uh, uh, Tom is a great dude. And you know, he, he, that was, O'Teal, that was one of, there were like two people. You, you read the book of well, two people that Bruce said he was concerned with over that movie. He says, you know, he, and he says, you know, you hope you hope that 30 of your friends enjoy it, that kind of thing, the way he yeah. it. And he says, but there are only two people I'm worried about and uh, or that I was concerned with their feelings. And one was Tom uh, yeah. Mac McNamee. And because he says he bared his soul, man. He said, that was raw. He says, he the lost other his one was Galadriel Allman. He said, I was concerned mm. about her because I'm in that movie talking about her dad and how important he was to me. And I didn't want it to come across as some cheesy stuff and whatever. So I was concerned about her as well. And so this was at a lunch and I asked him, so I said, what, uh, well, what does she think? What does Galadriel think now that she's seen it? He says, well, I just had lunch with her last week. I said, and what'd she say? We didn't discuss it. <laughs> <laughs> he might've been nervous about it, but I'm sure she wouldn't she didn't, take it no, that she way. Was, she, uh, cause I know I talked with her after that and she was all cool. I mean, it was, 
he wasn't, I don't think he was that concerned, but if he was, it was those two people. Those were the ones he, yeah. he mentioned. Cause they, but um, yeah, it was such a great movie. So much fun. Michael Kopenick just hit a home run with that movie. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I, that's when I realized like, I mean, I always trusted it. It was just a feeling, you mm -hmm. know, you just, yeah. you have a feeling about certain Oops. people and it's almost like, I don't even care if it's real or not. Yeah. You ever see the movie Big Fish? Yes. Oh God. Yeah. Yes. That movie, I ball my eyes out every Dude. time I see that movie. That's, That's what it was like when I saw that movie <laughs> at the end, I was like, I lived that movie. I was like, you know, Yes, you did, dude. You told that's me. So oh, that is a great movie, uh, guys. Yeah, that's one I'm with you. Uh, am I, I cry at that one because it also reminds me of my dad who used to tell tall tales, not to the extent of Bruce where some of them weren't tall tales, but they actually happened. But my dad yeah. would, tell, would tell similar kinds of things as this character in Big Fish about how he rescued my mom from dinosaurs and that's how they met. <laughs> this kind of thing, right? And when you're six, you're like, whoa, you're all over that stuff because, yeah. and so you buy it. But, um, but all of that stuff stays with you. And I think you know, that's why Bruce was a great uncle for a lot of people because he yeah. could be that dude with young people that would blow their minds and, and be their favorite uncle for like hundreds <laughs> of kids. Well, he did so much crazy stuff like before your very eyes. Yes. That you know, and uh, what was maybe was uh, who did, was I talking to? They said, "What's the weirdest thing Bruce ever did?" You know, and I was like, dying on stage on his seventieth birthday at the Fox wasn't you know like yes. you know just I was like, there's so I think many they things asked you that, that happened. Tales from the Golden Road or maybe something. maybe that was like, yeah, that was I think it was Tales from the Golden Road because I remember now that you say that I remember you getting that question and that was exactly the right answer. Well, he did so many things. It yeah. was like, well, how do you pick? So I just picked the last most legendary <laughs> most unbelievable like there you go that's him well, isn't it you know isn't it incredible that like how many people say that uh that old adage like oh he died doing what he loves yeah. but this he actually did he like yeah, went he out did. at the end of the it wasn't the middle of the show it wasn't and, the you know we were talking about uh the senses before earlier smell and hearing and such hearing is the last sense that leaves us when we die, if, mm. if we have hearing, assuming we have all yeah. of our senses and we don't you know, struggle with a disability therein, um, then hearing is the last one to go, they, they say. Mm. And I can't imagine, I just, you know, there's a part of me that wants to believe that that's the last thing that Bruce was, was covered in was this joyful noise of, you know, because they were just jamming. There's 30 musicians just going. And, and, uh, and if that's the last thing he heard, I've got to think that, you know, where whatever that green room in the sky is, has got to be a great place. <laughs> I think about it a lot with all the people that have recently passed, you mm -hmm. know, um, some of them seeing what's going on now and looking down, you know, like Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. You see Obi-Wan and Luke's dad and all these people, you know, it's just like I think about that a lot. And um it gives me comfort for sure. Yeah, G Jerry, I'd love to. I'd love to know a little bit about like Bruce gives you the green light to write the book, right? Yep. <clears throat> Someone that interesting, right? You're not going to talk to a politician about their career as a politician. You're talking about a guy who lived a hundred lives, right? Yeah. 
How was the writing process? What was it like? Did he say, come over and I'm opening up my yearbook and let's start there? Or did you have to dig a lot? Like Both. It was both of those things, actually. He was, because Bruce was, um, you know, one of the things that my observation with, with Bruce was that, you know, he, he could also do his sleight of hand to help keep a distance. Like there are things that, you know, the guys in the van and, you know, who are his family are going to see and know about Bruce that Bruce isn't going to show everybody else, but he might do something. But these guys know like some of the tricks that he would pull maybe to, to just sort of be friendly with a fan or, or, uh, but doesn't want to necessarily be close to the, or maybe the person's had too much to drink, whatever it is. He was usually really good at diffusing that with his ability to, you know, either play a trick guess their birthday, all these different gifts that he had that he, that he brought to bear. Right. And so, um, all of that to say is it sometimes got tough to get to, to know like the family, Bruce, like to O'Teal's point about finding out what his real name was and finding out that his dad was known as Gus, you know, all this stuff that, that Bruce never would have talked about for a couple of reasons. Mainly it bored him, you know, it just wasn't part of, his it, for him it wasn't what formed him because you know his like his real dad left him pretty early but he was important I know to Bruce because people who were important to Bruce like his you know say his ex wife his you know his best friends at the time say yeah this was important to Bruce and he actually got to meet his old man and it was a big time for him and it was the only time I ever saw him take a drink you know that kind of thing so there's there were these big moments for Bruce that. I thought were important to that he didn't necessarily want to talk about, but he didn't say, don't talk about that. He would just say, Oh, uh, ask O'Teal this instead. Or, or, you know, it would be more like, you you know, you've got to get, uh, you know, the Falcon to tell you the story about that time in the band. That's what you need to. And so, and Andy would share the information. He would be like, here, Kreutzmann, you know, he's in Hawaii. So there's a four hour difference. Call him at one o'clock tonight. He'll be ready for your call. That, so he would set me up with these great, you know, interviews, sometimes at a moment's notice. Sometimes he would just send me a group of, you know, texts with numbers. Because my theory is that Bruce um, knew 4% of the world's population. And so he, was able to, he was able to send me numbers for people that I, you know, and it would be random. It would be like, here's Mike Gordon's number, but I can't uh, share John Fishman. You know, and it, it would <laughs> It would be some weird random thing. And it could be because Fishman's moon was in something or I don't know, but there was always a reason. And it worked out that I could trade both of those off and, uh, you know, and I talked to other people. That was a big part of it. A lot of it is just talking to other people and say, you were with Bruce. What was it like to be in the van? Or, or you know, what was he like when he was a 30-year-old, you know, and, and trying to do comedy and music or or whatever. And all these people are still around. Um, many are in the movie that we were talking about. Many are not. That's the one advantage of a book, you know, at hundred and whatever pages, 180 pages, I could talk to them like, and so could the filmmakers, but they have to get it down to an hour yeah. and a half. I yeah. could grow mine. So I interviewed a hundred and 150 people, probably quoted 90 of them. And so he knew everybody and they all had different, you know, some, it's interesting. Some of the fun in the book was telling stories like, okay, Bruce told this story these three different ways. 
And he would do it like gleefully. This is part of it. But it wasn't <laughs> like he was like, a, you know, don't don't tell, uh, you know, O'Teal I told it this way because Herring might hear it this way. Or, you know, it was never <laughs> like that. It was just it was like, a, oh, yeah, when we played in Alabama, uh, George Wallace and Bear Bryant were there and we needed a, you know, a state patrol. And it would grow. It, it, the stories would grow appendages in the telling each time. And so then you talk to somebody who was there and they'd say, it didn't happen that way. It's hilarious, but it didn't happen. That happened in San Antonio or some, you know, some other crazy story. And so it's just, it was fun to follow the different breadcrumbs. And um, that was part of the joy, actually. My favorite was Davey Williams, who is one of the most, if people think Bruce is cracked, Dude, Davey Williams is shattered into Who's a million. Who's Davey Williams? He's a guitarist that lives in Birmingham, Alabama. And I I lived in Birmingham, Alabama for 18 years. And he makes Bruce look like inside. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's this legendary story that um, they played Alabama and opened for D- Three Dog Night and did all of their songs like detuned. And <laughs> the crowd like hated them. Oh, and somebody at band was like, you know, screw you, you bunch of it might have been, but you pencil naked did I always heard like the wrestling rap yeah. go. <laughs> and he drove golf he drove golf balls into the audience. And Bruce was like I think he went to school on a golf scholarship. Like he was a great golfer, right? He was a great golfer, yeah. <laughs> but one of these um, golf balls supposedly hit Davy Williams <laughs> and changed his life. <laughs> so, like, it's one thing to like. I remember like having the experience of running into Davy Williams at like a grocery store. You know, and it's almost like you're at a grocery store and there's an extraterrestrial next to you. And you go, hey, what's up? You know, and you just keep <laughs> shopping. Yeah. So but then I'm pretty sure Davey uh, told me that story. And it was I don't think he got hit by the golf ball, but I think he saw it. And it definitely was a life changing experience for him. <laughs> so that's, like, <laughs> that's the thing. Bruce is so larger than life and so many lives, as you guys uh, said that that um there's room for all of the legends you know like but but the, um i didn't i tried not to waste too much time pointing fingers and saying oh but this is you know and tried to present when there were stories like this that were you know fanciful and fun and there were several versions often told by bruce you know it was fun to to show each one and not say this is what really happened but here's one version here's another version and uh and it, it sounded like a lunch, you know, when, the more I wrote this, I tried to conjure what lunch was like with Bruce and the spirit of that, of the spirit of conversation. Um, and, so, and it just, it seemed to have that rhythm as the stories unfolded for this, for this book, because the story of Davy is a great one. That, um, I've heard it also that Mark Rebo, you know, the guitarist Mark Rebo um, was at the Grease Band's gig in at the Fillmore. And he was he was tripping balls. He was out of his mind on acid at the time. He was like 17 in a high school band, having the time of his life. He was there to see Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Instead, he got hooked on the Grease Band. And I heard not from him, but someone else who introduced me to him that uh, they were golf balls at that one. And that Mark was one who saw a golf ball. And the dude talking about Mark said something like, he saw the death of his mother on Saturn or something like that. It all came toward him. And, 
And um, it was just some weird shit. And, but it was, it's legendary because I talked with Mark and he was there and that didn't happen, but there was a guy hitting golf balls, like plastic golf balls. I mean, so hearing yeah. it like from a dude who was there and it was, had this magic feeling, right? It was almost like it took me there. Um, and I could see it through his uh, in, enlarged pupils, but it was really, it was just great to occasionally meet those people, you know, who were like, oh yeah, I was at that show. It was amazing. Um, That's great. Cause I did a show, I did a record with Mark Rebo uh, with Trey Anastasio and Fishman called Surrender to the Air. Yeah. And it was all avant-garde, just out stuff with members from Sun Ra's band. It's a killer album. And um, I'm getting I'm writing and, it down. I got to get and I, I did not know that story about Rebo. So it's great. You know, even at this late date, at yes. 56 to find out these connections like me and me and Mark Rebo had that the way me and Davey Williams have. I lived in town with him and Davey and, and Mark Rebo almost certainly knew each other or know each other because Davey. Davey used to play in this. uh uh, avant-garde away. group called uh, Curlew, which was in New York and all through yeah. Europe and all that well, stuff. Well, Davey passed away a, like uh, two years ago. He did. No. He did. I mean, like just, I mean, just no. shortly, the, when did the, like I turned the thing uh, in, whenever it was, I talked with the, a friend of his, you know, Lee Shook? I think, yeah. Well, Lee, um, oh, Lee was friends with Davey, I think as well. And he wrote about, um, Anyway, wow. such an influential musician, obviously. And one of the yeah. funny stories about Davey O'Teal, you might remember this. Um, it, it always cracks me up because I heard both John Bell and Dave Schools tell it hilariously. But widespread panic was on its way to, um, you know, becoming a, a thing. And they were, and you guys were with, I think Charlie was in the band at the time. And you guys and Davey was playing with you guys. You were in Birmingham. And Davey was sitting in with you and you guys were doing some off the wall stuff and panic was there. You opened for pa- and they, it blew them away. So, and this was their words. It dismantled us. We were going to break up. We were this close to breaking up. I mean, both JB and schools were like, we were destroyed. We saw this. And not only were they, where they was Davey playing with balloons and was O'Teal doing, you know, but they were playing Bruce's songs, doing this stuff. And schools was like, you know, he says, I was like frazzled. They were out of it. And somehow they got together after that. And they were like, you know what? We can't imitate those guys. We got to be us. Mm. <laughs> That's so funny. We were out of our, Davey did the craziest, maybe the single craziest thing I've ever seen done musically <clears throat> and that's saying something for him because <clears throat> he used to have all these devices bruce had remember the vibrating egg like he got that stuff from davy david would get like it would be like maybe a little dinosaur or a fish that had a wheel motor on it so you would it would go across the floor you know yeah, on yeah, wheels yeah, but you couldn't yeah. see him like, so like a happy would, meal toy yeah <laughs> so he would wind it up or make sure it had fresh batteries or whatever. And then he would stick it on the pickups and it'd be like, you know, it just sounded like (laughs) the crazy. So we're playing at planet earth, ironically in Knoxville, Tennessee. 
and Davey comes over for this gig. Oh, my goodness, man. These people, there weren't many of them there, but they must have wondered what in the fuck was going on. So Davey's doing his thing. He's like, you know, and it's and you're just like dimensions are, you know, bleeding into each other. And somehow there's this big brick wall to this on the one side of the stage. And somehow there was this enormous long piece of like 10 feet of like thin metal, like weather stripping of some kind. It was like a part that would go on the side of your house or something. And Davey grabs it and sticks one end against the guitar and the other end, he starts scraping up and down the brick wall. Whoa. And so the thing's bending and, and it's making the sound that you just get. And I'm playing and people ask me like, did I trip while I was playing with the Colonel? I was like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> Who needed psychedelic? It was the yeah. most psychedelic experience I had over and over and over and over and over again with that guy. And Davey was at the spear tip of that shit, man. Just like, <laughs> we were like, what is happening right now? It was so liberating, man. Yeah. Like, Completely liberating. I think um, Lee Shook called Davey and Bruce both like, I think he called them like cosmic southerners. They're the, they were like the example. They are. Of cosmic southerners. And uh, Yeah, dude. There's a, they should do a documentary about all these crazy southerners like St. Ohm. Yes, yes. And Davey. Good one. Yeah. And there's. Uh, because and so Howard Finster. Howard Finster. I've, I can spot them, man, like crazy. These That's crazy cool. old white guys that are like, man, I can't believe Davey passed away. Wow. He had this album called Charmed, I'm Sure. I say it all the time. <laughs> My kid does something really weird or really just boneheaded or mean or so. I just go, Charmed, I'm Sure. <laughs> you know, because the record, you know, it's like Charmed, I'm Sure. And then you hear <laughs> it's so out. Like, well, so out there, man. They're space people. They're like the southern, these white southern space people. I think they're plants. I think it's literally like they're like cosmic CIA molds. You know what I mean? They're fast moving ants, you know? Yeah, you know, they're like they're on some cosmic mission and they're planted everywhere here and there. And there's some of every race. And these ones, you know, it's it's weird. Flournoy? Yeah, Flournoy. Right? Flournoy Holmes, yes. Dude, you could just pick them out. You and me should get together just like. He did the cover. Flournoy did this, man. He captured all of this stuff. I mean, Flournoy did uh, Eat a Peach for people that don't know. And yes. A bunch of, you know. He did the art. Most, yeah, most of Bruce's records, I think, among yeah. others. But yeah, Eat a Peach is, I think, the iconic um you know, album cover, especially and some others here. too, right? I should yeah. be shot for not knowing. I should, this should I, all be here. off the top of my head, but same here, same here. But I'm having, I have, I'm old, I'm 60, so I, I have, uh, I'm AARP, so I have excuses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm decrepit. I'm decrepit. You know, <laughs> and it's interesting too when you hear the music like um, Colonel Bruce's or Captain Beefheart. Or early Zappa, we're only in it for the money type mm -hmm. stuff. That's just like it opens with like, are you hung up and who needs the Peace Corps and all that. That it's like it either repulses you to the point that like you can't look away. Yeah. Or 
you're in love with it because you're so confused by it, but it, it sounds right in your your equally alien brain. Mm-hmm. That it's just, it doesn't really seem to be, it reminds me of that Garcia thing that it's like, it's licorice. You either love it or hate it. Oh, right. You yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. It, and it seems to me being in the band, O'Teal, like how on earth was it like, because he was all about quality, right? But it was a different definition of quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said I mean, something to me about yeah. how he told you, like, I want to hear about the time you embarrassed yourself in your playing. Yeah. He wanted all things. And I think, you know, like what you said about licorice is so relevant and, and you, people's reaction, because that's what he thought was the highest uh, that you could achieve was that no matter what, that it would stop you in your tracks and you would just be like, so whether you hated it, loved it, or it just were stopped, he was like, that's power. Yeah. Yeah. Because I can make you stop in your tracks. You know, and it's easier than you think. Like, you know, he but he was able to do it on multiple levels. So where whether you were just a complete idiot for, you know, sorry to be judgmental or whatever. But there are some, you know, (laughs) I've been known myself at times. But whether you're a complete idiot or whether you were getting it on some really high level like Salvador Dali or Picasso or whatever, Sun Ra. You know, Seuss. like, the, yeah, So he just and that's what he taught me. He was like, you know, make sure that what you do changes the atmosphere like mm. it, it's it. It's it should be definitive, you know, yeah. and whatever the outcome is all fine, because that's a success. Right. That's a weird thing. I never would have ever considered that if it wasn't for him. in a way. It's almost like uh, a, this. uh Co- uh, this playwright I worked with. He wrote some plays a while back, and he used to say all the time, "Don't be attached to the outcome." And the, the point being, oh, that's that, Bruce. You know, mm. it, it's just that it was the process. It was yeah. uh, getting to that place uh, that that lovely. You, you put that, but it it almost feels like it's that place between the um, you know, before the release. You know, just that it's yeah. just a, a pinnacle. Uh, you know, what conscious of that? He was. He was intentional. It was that intentional. Uh, otherness that just blew my mind because you guys in ARU, what was different about you guys, and not just to say this, but and my daughter who did some copy editing for the book, she's a great editor and she helped me a lot. She kept joking about how I kept saying the greatest band anyone ever heard throughout the book, maybe 10, 12 times I referred to ARU as, and it's so, sort of a joking way, like it'll say, and then Bruce started playing a Monday night gig where he was putting together the pieces for the greatest band anyone ever heard. And it was sort of a joke because several, you know, a number of musicians who saw you guys, especially during Horde would say, those guys are the best I ever heard. And so that becomes the running theme about ARU because anytime Bruce talked at at lunch about the band, he was talking about ARU. He'd say, well, well, I'm going to tour with the band in July. And we all knew, oh, cool. So that'll be great. You know, will Monday be back this time? You know, that kind of thing. And of course not, you know, but, but, but it, Interesting. it was always that that's what you guys were. And the sound was different too. So I would say yeah. you guys were, I don't know if accessible is the right word, but there was more, there was more going on. I mean, the bronze age, 
hit a lot of what Mike was talking about. That sort of, you know, you know, you can either love it or hate it. You know, you really test it. The Bronze Age could test you, you know, with some of that stuff. We're going to see how much you like this. And (laughs) ARU was just being ARU. It wasn't like you were pandering to anybody, but you were put, there were these chops that were, but somehow channeled. Uh, I don't know how that's to put it, but like even the live stuff that was crazy and off the chain, even visually, especially visually off the chain, the music would come back to this place most of the time. And it was like, yeah. how the hell did they get me there? You know, they first they started to take me off the rails. We're going around some mountain in Colorado, and now we're going down straight again. And that's somehow they did it. And because of the crazy man, the crazy fat guy on the school got him, got us there. Yeah. We were just following him. You know, you know, one thing you said early, really earlier, really hit me hard. And I want to go back to it for a second. And that was about the different versions of his stories. And, you know, I thought I used to think a lot about like a lot of these old blues guys that um, some of whom were illiterate, like they couldn't technically read and write, but they knew like bazillions of lyrics and many times many different lyrics this happens in bluegrass too to the same song so they're not written down right but Mm. oh you know this remember this verse that so-and-so sang in west texas like oh yeah i remember that you know and then there's so because matt mundy did that with uh what was it sitting on top of the world and they were like joke verses too you know um I like peas. I like grits. I like girls with big old eyes. Honey, let me be your salty dog. You know, like, <laughs> um, but it's like, you know, it's kind of the same with the different versions of the same story. Yes. Yes. Like it's like stormy Monday, but it's all these different yes. verses. And they're That's all really neat. Yeah. They're all correct because. And everybody knew this. Every, I mean, I think yeah. like almost everybody knew that there were. That's what was interesting about mining for material for the to make a book is you always ran across a couple of people who were like, it would piss them off or something because you know it wasn't like this and left to right and whatever order they see things. But it was my contention was that Bruce was from that classic southern storyteller mold mm. he was the guy that sat on the if if he if bruce was living in the 1800s he would have been the mark twain of the south he would have yeah. been because mark twain was in connecticut most of his life so you know even though he sounded southern he was in connecticut but yeah. bruce would have been the mark yeah. twain of the south and he because he was that classic southern and as things occurred to him the story might grow appendages and, it, <laughs> and the meaning grows too his stories weren't as much about telling history it was about Telling a story, you know, it's a, well, he that, might tell something that might later come true. You know, <laughs> that he made up. Yeah, like wait, a he well, totally you said that. You know what happened? With, I wanted to tell you this during. Uh, <laughs> oh, I wanted to share this with you during uh, the show with David uh, Dance when Trump won the election. I bet he knew the day it. after Trump won the election. I get a call from Bruce, and this was his. This was his message. Because I don't, I don't, I think he left a message. It was, I told you. Because yeah. he had been saying all along, yeah. everything is pro wrestling. 
He'd been saying that for years. The world has become pro wrestling to the point that it's all level. Pro wrestling doesn't stand out as much as it used to because the world has come to its level. And so, (laughs) you know, and he thought it was both normal and crazy. It frightened him, but he could swim in those waters. You know, it was, he couldn't swim there. He was just like, this is kind of fucked up. But, but he knew it for what it was. He recognized it. And when Trump won, he said, I told you, and I knew exactly what he was talking about. Everything is pro wrestling. Yeah. Well, and you know, what's interesting about what you guys are saying with this, like changing stories and stuff like that, like his comedian side, like there mm-hmm. are times when you know that maybe this, maybe the punchline doesn't work for this particular audience and something in the back of that brain goes, you better switch this up because it's going to fall flat and you do Taylor. whatever you need to do to get that, you know, that, that, that laugh or that nod or that holy shit or whatever you're going for. Mm-hmm. And that's like, you know, I mean, he's just human improvisation at that point. You know, now imagine that you do that and then it comes true. Mm-hmm. That's the weird thing about Bruce. Like he'll do something. He'll lie. And you're like, was he lying or was he predicting the future knowingly? Thanks for listening. We'll be right back after this. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at Smart Wolf. For more than 25 years, Smartwool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They are here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. What's up, everyone? I'm Mike. And I'm O'Teal. And these are our Sunset Lake CBD gummies that are almost gone. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned business that ships CBD products directly from their farm to your door. For years, Sunset Lake was a Vermont dairy farm producing milk for Ben & Jerry's ice cream. In 2018, they diversified and started growing hemp for CBD. And with a product for everyone, they offer pre-rolls, hemp cigars, and hemp flowers, as well as tinctures, gummies, and CBD-crafted coffee to help with stress, aches, and pains. Sunset Lake CBD saves you money by shipping high-quality CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Want to know what I've been using a lot of, O'Teal? This salve with the arnica uh, yeah. on my on my old bones. You get back from a show and you got tore ankle, rub a little bit of this on there. You're ready to dance the next day. And you know, S- Sunset Lake uh, comes a time listeners can visit sunsetlakecbd.com and use promo code TIME for 20% off of their purchase. That's sunsetlakecbd.com, promo code TIME. And tell them we sent you. Thanks for listening. He would say things like, uh, he told us this uh, story. There was about four or five people. I remember this. We were at the IHOP, you know, and we're just sitting around our pancakes and whatnot. And, uh, and Bruce, uh, Bruce is telling us about um, the time that he had snuck into the, uh, was it the, not the poison apple. Uh, one of the places on Auburn Avenue, um, uh, the Royal Peacock, 
he'd snuck, yeah, yeah. he snuck into the Royal Peacock and, um, and he saw, you know, and he was talking these stories. We've heard these stories before. Well, um, uh, one of the guys at the table worked at the radio station at one of the stations in Atlanta, uh, I think at Georgia state actually. And he's, he was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds like one of your tales, Bruce. That sounds great. And, uh, so the next time, He's, in fact, Bruce even said, and I was there, and I wasn't supposed to be there, and I saw Bill Curry. He was a freshman at Georgia Tech at the time, playing football, and he wasn't supposed to be there. And he was him and his uh, and his sister were the only white people in the audience except for me, but they couldn't see me. And he tell all this detail. And Scott's like, "Nah, it's crazy." Yeah, Bill Curry, sure. Scott goes back to work the next week, and Bill Curry does a football coach show on the station. And Bill comes in and Scott says, wait a minute, coach, I got to ask you something. So he proceeds to ask about the story. And Bill stops for a second and he goes, no, oh, no, your friend's wrong. That, that, that wasn't my sister. That was my wife. We've been married now for 50 something years. And, uh, <laughs> and, he's, and so he says, well, but yeah, he says, I was there. He says, that was my fetish in those days. We used to go see all those guys, Jackie Wilson. But, I mean, Bill Curry is an R&B nut. And nobody knew this, you know, but Bruce did because he saw it happening. <laughs> it was great. And you, sh you should never like you shouldn't doubt Bruce about stuff like that. Like no. I just, you know, when we were when we did, uh, I was there when when he met or I should say hooked up with Kreutzmann again after many years. I don't know if if Kreutzmann remembered him as well as Parrish or as well as. Um, Pigpen would have, yeah. you know, but I remember Kreutzmann freaking out, and I was like, "Oh, Bruce got him! What? Yeah. Let me go find out what happened," you know. <laughs> and of course, it's some old sports shit, you know. Yes. And he realized that that his grandfather had coached football against college football against Kreutzmann's grandfather. Yes. And they were, and so Kreutzmann's like, what? Oh my God, you know, and they were all Tauruses, him, Bruce, and Butch Trucks. Yes. And just like, he was like, three Tauruses, there's going to be some fireworks, you know, just like, it was just so funny, man. Um, yeah. And it's all true. It's all true. I mean, I, that was the fun. I dug into his family's history because I'm a football and, you know, sports geek. So I'm looking up this stuff. I'm like, holy shit, this guy's, this guy, his grandpa, was the first, you know, University of Georgia is known as the big, you know, one of the big football powers. And in, in, in this state, it's, you know, yeah. all that. It's like big time. Well, he was the first winning coach at that school. He's the one, his grandpa's the one who made them a winning classic team. They wow. weren't even called the Bulldogs yet. This was wow. during World War One, And Bruce would tell these stories. <laughs> But what's hilarious is, and I found this in an old story from like the early 80s that Bruce gave to the art papers, really cool magazine. And um, he was talking yeah. about his grandpa and he said how, what an influence he was and how, you know, he looked up to him as a kid for different reasons, right? You look, as a little boy, you're looking up, this is this hero, you know, this macho thing, whatever. He knew Ty Cobb and, and all this football stuff. He was a colonel and, and all this stuff. And then um, as he got older and Bruce gets wiser, he starts to see the other side. Oh, he's mean to women. He's abusive or all these other things. And he said, so I learned a lot from my grandfather. He, he talked in this article and, you know, and he meant the good and the bad. And he, yeah. and he learned his theory of the opposites 
from his grandpa. He, he's, that's when he started thinking about, um, you know, herstory and, um, yeah. and out introductions and outertainment and things like this. <laughs> it, it's, his grandfather kind of informed a lot of those feelings in Bruce. It's funny. His, his, um, his, I was going to say dual trajectory or lineage, but it's really three because you have this like this old Southern classical white side. And then you have this deep influence from the black lady that raised him. What's her name? Liza May. Liza May Williams. Yeah. And then you have the total extraterrestrial <laughs> track as well. But when you, when you see the three of them, you're like, Oh, that kind of explains the whole thing. It all goes you're like, he's this anomaly that's made up of these three things that he's holding in tension. You know, he's keeping all of them alive mm -hmm. simultaneously, you know, mm. it's incredibly unique, man. I remember being with his family one time at a family thing. And I don't remember whether it was Christmas time or some holiday time, but it was him and Face and Toosie. This is when Toosie was still alive. And Bruce, who I'm guessing Toosie was his aunt or great aunt? His aunt. His aunt. Okay. So she was an older woman, very Southern. I loved her accent. And um, <clears throat> Bruce had this big hole in his pants, you know, <laughs> and his foot's up on the coffee table. And, you know, literally, like you could see inside, you know, and she was like, Bruce, put put your leg down. <laughs> You know, just <laughs> it was just so it was so out to see him in like this relatively beaver cleaver. Like this is, yes. you yeah. know, and she just he's still stuck out in his own family. She was Hilarious. like, put your leg now. You know better than that. You know, just like he's like, <laughs> that's right. Hey, uh, so out. <laughs> his brother, the, the weirdness all this, this, you know, it's not weird anymore. When you think about how many lines cross and how much synchronicity there is. It, it stops being weird and it becomes yeah. accepted. It becomes expected. And things like um, things like when I found out his brother's nickname was Face. And I've been calling my wife Face since the day I met her. She's, her nickname is Faith. And really? Like, yeah. Weird wow. things. It was just all kinds of different things that happened. And, you know, of course, the usual things with Bruce uh, guessing birthday on the first time. And, you know, um, guessing like my wife's too actually he got hers better than mine he missed mine by like two days he said uh he, the first time he met me or something he was doing this thing and he was like like, like that concert here in Saltina Coochie he was like um yeah you're you're easy same birthday as Trey Anastasio and then, and then he, he gives Trey's date Libra he says Libra same date as Trey and I was like maybe I don't know what Trey's birthday is and he's and he mentions it, and I'm like, and I start to wince and go like that. And he goes, "Wait, wait, your moon was in something or other." And he says, and he nails it. And then he gets the right day and everything. I'm like, okay. So I, I saw him do that so many times where he would be off and he'd be like, and then he'd look at you and again, oh yeah, your moon. And then he'd redial it and he'd go, and then he'd get the right day. God damn it! It's it it just insane. It was nuts, and he would he would scare like uh. Oh, Till could sh maybe shed light on this because I think I heard this from Sype, but it was at uh, whatever 
you guys played in Knoxville. I guess it was Planet Earth. And wasn't there, um, did you guys stay upstairs? Was there like a green room upstairs, an apartment I, or something? I know what story you're about to tell. And I want to hear the tale because apparently some woman walks in and maybe she did, was lost or something, but Bruce guesses all, or says all this stuff about her. And she freaks out, runs away, and then comes back to hear the rest of it or something. What <laughs> See, I was thinking of a different one where – and this this um, happened with the club owner. <clears throat> and I won't say his name because of the story, um, but he <laughs> – we were eating breakfast. He was a, he had a bad problem with alcohol back then, really bad. So in the morning, he would be like shaking like this, you know. So he let us stay in his penthouse uh, above the club to help us save money on hotels. Now, if Bruce is sleeping within close proximity to you, there's a certain point in the morning where you're not all the way awake, but you're not in deep sleep, like you're coming up out of it. And if he's with you in that band with, he will get every friggin' thing that's happening in your life. Your most secret shit. He will see it like it's in high def, right? So we're at breakfast. I'm probably pretty hungover myself because I'm, you know. Now, I know Bruce can do weird stuff, but I hadn't seen this one before. Wow. So we're eating breakfast. We're all ordering. Chuck's, well, I said his name. He's got the shakes a little bit, you know. And like, you know, mid-sentence, he's just like, somebody's suing you. And it's and he, he just starts picking out these little details. I might be wrong here because I can't remember. But he's like, there's a woman. And then there's a man with blah, 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 and blah, blah. And, and I'm watching the blood just drain out of Chuck's face. Wow. Right. So Bruce gets, he just is kind of re remembering. Like he just, he had this bite of eggs and he's like, oh, yeah, I remember this morning. And finally, the club owner cuts me, he goes, God damn it, Hampton. How the fuck do you know all that? Nobody knows this but me and the two other people. And he's like freaking out. And we're just like, oh, shit. <laughs> like it's lit right now. And I'm just like, check, please, you know. And Bruce just immediately starts. I'm, so, I'm sorry, man. If I'm sleeping underneath you uh, between uh, uh, 630 and 8 in the morning when you're whatever, sleep, I, and I just see every day. I'm sorry. I did. I, you know. <laughs> I'm just like, whoa, man. Dude. This cat is like, he can't even help it. Wow. He cannot even help it, man. That's crazy. Wild. So I knew, like, I was like, you yeah. have no secrets from this guy. <laughs> like, I've roomed with him, you know? It's interesting to hear that he was apologizing. <laughs> he doesn't seem like a guy who apologized much. Not well, much. Not no, much. Chuck was freaking out, man. Well, sure. <laughs> yeah. He was like... That's he, he experienced the impossible. Like, that's the whole thing. Like what Sun Ra was saying, like, you know, if you join my band, you're going to see the impossible and you won't leave. Mm. So you have somebody like John Gilmore, who Miles wanted Gilmore, Count Basie wanted Gilmore. Everybody wanted Gilmore. He played with Blakey. This guy played. And man, he never left for 35 years, man. Yeah. No money. No glory, no fame, no nothing. He followed Sun Ra because he saw the impossible, period. Yeah. yeah. Right? And that was, and so <laughs> I was just like, 
And by that time, I had seen Bruce do a lot of, you know, just time and time again. But that one was like a, a haymaker. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. That is. That's, that's, that's the, the, the Mac Daddy of those tales. That's insane. Oteal, that's like, um, yeah, yeah that, that, that whole idea of him kind of almost, well, well, definitely apologizing in a nervous sort of way because he realizes at that time, you know, that whatever is open to him is there. And, he, and that feeling of helplessness, it's just, yeah, there's a part of me that makes me love him more when I hear that kind mm. of stuff. You know? I, th- I think he was just trying to confirm it. Yeah. Really? Mm. He's like, oh, wait a minute. There was somebody suing you and blah, blah, blah. It's like a dream he had. And he's just like yeah. confirming the details. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> and the club was losing his mind. He got, he, I bet he had a drink earlier that day. Dude, he, yeah. I, he was like, how? How? <laughs> he kept this stuff a secret, man. Like nobody knew. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Um, it's It's interesting, too, thinking about like talking about Bruce on this Garcia on the end of a Garcia celebration, because, you know, I read, I read a ton of different books about Jerry. I think my favorite is dark star, which is an oral biography. I like that style. And it's just like the way that stories are put together, but, you know, writing a book about a guy this interesting and also realizing that the spider web or like the splintering glass that, comes out from that person and that like goes out to so many, you know, we're talking about ARU, we're talking about panic and all that, but like REM, Dave Matthews band, like so many all the way out to, you know, these brothers band, Grateful Dead Zappa. Yeah. I mean, literally. And it's just, and then like the guy that, you know, he knew Dwayne, Dwayne Allman got Colonel Bruce, his record deal. That's right. He got that with, Capricorn and then Phil Walden sold music to eat to Columbia Records to Clive Davis, right? Oh, yeah, that's it. So, yeah. the, the, the bass player in that band, Hampton Grease Band, has the exact same birthday as me, August 24th. Real Mike so, uh, Holbrook. Me and Mike Holbrook, he used to take us out to, to lunch on our birthday or dinner, this Lebanese place. Oh, Nicholas, oh, amazing sweet. in Atlanta. What a and, nice um, boy Holbrook is, too, yeah. Yeah, and Holbrook. So there's always these connections. Yeah, like when yeah. I found, when I got the Almond Brothers gig later, and then much much later, you know, twenty mm. years after that, or eighteen, I get the gig with the Dead, and it's like all these things connect up. Yeah, you know, Bruce's ties. They they never it never ceases. Kreutzmann's grandfather and his grandfather. You know, just like <laughs> it's always. I'll learn something on my deathbed. Right. Some new connection about Bruce that's relevant to the day that I die. That wouldn't, <laughs> you know. And then I'll die. You know, it's like yeah. <laughs> just be like, you know, yeah. <laughs> it'll never stop. We you touch know? so yeah. many people. That's just so incredible so to crazy. think about how. Yeah. yeah. I think he was he was interesting. I think he was a um, his great superpower to, to me was he was a people connector. He was mm-hmm. really absolutely good to do it, and and I think he knew what he was. A lot of times people do things in a shotgun sort of way, where it's like, come on, but you know the con- whatever convening sort of thing. And Bruce could convene, but he was a connector. He would get he knew like. Um, for example, Johnny Knapp. I don't know if you ever had a chance to meet Johnny O'Toole. I did. did I you? did. I'm so yeah. glad. 
Johnny was this sweet man who um, was like in his mid eighties when Bruce started bringing him to gigs and letting him play. And there would be a part in a gig, you know, this rock show where suddenly Johnny Knapp would take the piano and Johnny could play anything. Yeah. That was the thing. And Johnny would he'd get the microphone and Bruce would let him say anything. And Johnny would get up there and say, I hate rock and roll with that <laughs> Brooklyn accent. He said, I believe like Bruce, there are only two kinds of music, good and bad. I hope to play some good. And so <laughs> and so Bruce would, he, what he knew he was doing is introducing Johnny to new generations of friends. Not yeah. that Johnny didn't have friends already in Atlanta. Yeah. He was at a point where his wife had passed away. Um, Johnny was lonelier. He couldn't get around. You know, he had fought through polio, car accidents, every possible accident. So Bruce would pick him up, take him to lunch, introduce him to all these goofballs, such as myself and others. And everybody became Johnny's family. And I think yeah. you multiply that around, you know, the world, Bruce's world. He yeah. did this a lot. There were a lot of friendships that were made um, and sustained because Bruce was a, a people connector. And it wasn't just, uh, go ahead. No, it's just, it's, it, it melts my heart. To, uh, he was that. a, he was a big softy like that. You know, you hear those stories, like he told this story, uh, it really pissed Clive Davis off, but the Hampton Grease band, they had the record release party at, you know, whatever huge building they were in, in New York, in Manhattan. And, uh, he invited these homeless people in to eat the the food. Yeah. And he was like, you know, they're like, the fuck are you doing, man? Like, this is a nice thing we're doing for you. And you bring all this homeless people in. And in his mind it was like, and I don't even know if this is true or not, but I saw him do it mm -hmm. in Atlanta on a much smaller scale. Like if we had a gig and somebody put out like a little buffet table. Mm-hmm. And then I would see a homeless guy come in and make a plate. And I knew, like, don't mess with him. Like, Bruce invited yeah. him to do that. Yeah. You know, so, like, it just, he had that real big softy thing. You know, the, a lot of those breakfast, those lunches at the IHOP. Yeah. I was in Atlanta and Nigel was just born. And he asked me to come all the time. But I was... Uh, you had a baby. Father of a newborn, yeah, and I missed all of them. Nap was there, and yeah, he was John, like, "Oh, you gotta come," and blah blah blah. And I missed so many of them. I think Kevin Scott caught a bunch of them. The bass player, oh, yeah, that's right. I think Kevin yeah. was there, and I saw. I think Dwayne Trucks was there a couple yeah. times. He yeah. was like Johnny, Johnny Bruce, uh, Jez Graham, myself, and Jez Graham. You yeah. know, maybe one or two other people, five or six people, but. Sometimes a big group of people would come and then the bullshit would fly. You know, you'd hear stories flying across the table and Johnny and Bruce in the middle where the energy was sort of bubbling up. But that was the thing. Bruce would find somebody like Johnny who would become his muse. You know, like um, yeah. I thought with a lot of bands, you know, with the ARU, he had a bunch of muses. He had a, a whole band of them, you know, mm. and then... It like, you know, uh, the Bronze Age or something would be like Billy McPherson would be his new. Yeah. You know, he'd build these bands around them. And then it was Bobby Lee Rogers later, this kind yep. of. And Damn Wolf, remember. Yeah, usually, it was, yeah, it was usually younger guys or closer to his. But with Johnny, it was like, well, here's a guy who's not playing that much. But he, and he's a lot older than me. 
I'm going to push him out front for a while and try to help him out. So whenever there were those local gigs or South Carolina gigs, there would be Johnny Knapp in the van, you know, living his life over again, like he was playing with Miles Davis again. You know, it was just beautiful. And, and, Bruce, and Bruce got energy from that, too. He would just, yeah. he would like, uh, this cat drives me crazy. I love him. <laughs> well, that stuff is so important. And even like, you know, with doing comedy, like, you know, my mentors were big Jay Okerson and Dave Attell and stuff like that. And to like, be able to have Dave, Dave took Jay under his wing. Jay took me under his wing and then introduced me to Dave. And then Dave took me around and it kind of felt like this, it gives you this, um, like confidence, like unlimited confidence in yourself in an industry of, no confidence. <laughs> so it's kind of like if Dave yeah. likes you and yeah. if Dave's vouching for and if he's bringing you on the road or whatever, it's like, yeah, I guess I'm okay at this. You know what I mean? Cause it seems yeah. like a Dave or a Bruce really wouldn't waste time with someone who yeah. wasn't taking it seriously, but also wasn't game, you know, like wasn't ready you, for you, the adventure. You had to be game for yeah. sure. That's I mean, that you probably were if he got in your, if you got in his sights anyway, yeah, but you definitely had to be game, you know. The he thing, would want you to be more of yourself. Yeah, he was like, you, but more, like, be braver. Be yeah. He's like, it was very empowering for sure. You know, it's so important to an, a young or a someone who's not as you know confident or well known or feels maybe to have that is just so important. You know, I, what I, I mean? was twenty four when I met him. And you know what did it was basically frightened because I was like, the world confused me so bad. And I was just like, I'm not made for this world. I don't even know if I'm from here, you know? And then I heard basically frightened and I was like, okay, so you're not frightened. I can tell you're laughing your way through this whole thing. So what's, what's up with basically frightened? He's like, well, you better be frightened. You know, because if you're not, then you're crazy. Yeah, you're not paying attention. Yeah. He was like, you're not crazy. You're basically frightened. You're saying, don't let them tell you you're crazy. Because if you, and I was just like, wow. And just just having someone tell me that, I was like, okay. And then he was just like, here, let me take this collar and this leech off. Go get them. You know, I was just like, now detune and go get them. Yeah, let me detune those on your way out. You know, just like. (laughs) Well, that's the thing I think I, I enjoyed so much about Zappa. And I listened to him too early to get it. And then when I went back around high school, I was like, he just apathy is the enemy. Yeah. And that's, that's in, Bruce. in my opinion, that's, that's Bruce, apathy dude. and hypocrisy are the two things that are like the, the yeah. real demons of society. When you stop yeah. caring and you start becoming a hypocrite and those guys are not like, you know, I mean, it's just, they are definitely not right. apathetic or hypocritical. He was a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love, I'm telling you, I wrote it down in my notebook. Uh, don't be attached to the outcome is, oh, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's an artist's mantra right there. It is. And um, I want to give credit where credit's due. I got it. And I'm not saying that he wrote it, but I got it from my dear friend, Jerry Stropnicki, who okay. was a, who's a playwright and um, 
we wrote some plays together and we've done some projects together. And he's like my brother from another mother. I appreciate you saying that. That, that stuck with me. And that's something that I think we all, you embark on anything creative and you're like, how does it end mm-hmm. before you even start it? And then you, that gets overwhelming and you're like, ah, I don't even want to start this. I don't know where it ends. Well, <laughs> you know? It's weird. This place where, where I live, Sati Nakuchi, is kind of a magic place. I mentioned earlier that there's some very, very deep roots. I mean, human roots in addition to the usual, you know, woolly mammoth roots. But, but I mean, uh, ancient roots going back thousands of years predating the Cherokee, right? So there is this special sort of feeling of, yeah. in that as a result is, I don't know if this is as a result of a lot of artists, hippies, <coughs> if you will, this kind of thing, have sort of come to the area over time at different places, different points. Asheville is part of kind of that same vortex almost. Mm, really? Yeah. But we're, you know, we're in that sort of part of the world. Anyway, Bruce would love you to come up here and he would mm. go to JB's, um, you know, JB has a, um, a place in Clarksville, Georgia, which is nearby to, to where I live. And JB mm. and his wife have this sort of a healing center, you know, where you could go in an energy room where they have these, you know, computer monitors around the wall and they basically <laughs> giving this subatomic um, energy. You go in there and, and Bruce would come up here and go do that. And it would like invigorate, you know, um, wow. this was like 2000, whatever, six, seven, that? eight, that kind of thing. And uh, it was kind of a cool thing. And that's when you were getting to know Bruce and that, sort of world it was a little different because he was out of atlanta you know it was a little chiller atmosphere lunches were at the the crappy mexican place in the crappy fake german town in in georgia (laughs) helen you know which is nearby so i used to motorcycle up there yes yes oh well one of the weirdest shows i ever saw bruce did o'teal was um (laughs) me and some friends used to put on a beer and wine festival as a fundraiser for our community center in helen as you know cheesy yeah. alpine town well <laughs> we got bruce's band to come up and play during one of the festivals and um i can't remember it was basically Dwayne trucks bruce carter herring um yeah. i can't remember who was might have been kevin scott on bass i'm not 100 percent. i think it was kevin but it was kevin who showed up out of the blue because he was riding his motorcycle with his brother was Jimmy Herring. Jimmy Herring, yeah. Herring showed up and they play. We're in this fest hall in Helen, which is this cheesy little place that they usually play bingo in and have fake German <laughs> dances during Oktoberfest. But we have it for a song and a dance for our festival. All the drunks have left. I mean, it's like 20 people left and Bruce and his band are performing for me and like 20 other people. And they're giving it everything. We got the show of our lives wow. from the killer band in a nearly empty uh, festival uh, hall. And it was, <laughs> but they put just wow. as much out there as if it would have been the Fox with 4,000 people. You know, it was just... The, most, of my, most of our gigs were like that. Like, I remember when... It was it was really nice when we started getting some fans because we could eat <laughs> and make some money. <laughs> but uh, so many nights I remember, uh, and they could and he would find these vortex spots too, like what you're talking about. Just like what are we? We're in some scene out of a David Lynch movie right now. Like what the yeah. fuck is going? <laughs> and it'd be some weird spot, and there'd only be twenty people. I remember this this old pool hall in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I think it was called breakers. And we had one of those gigs, nobody there. 
like early planet Earth days in Knoxville, all these spots just be 20 people. And we just had the most insane gig, like that gig where G Smith and Lorraine Newman, we cleared out the whole place. And like at four in the morning, there was two people left and we couldn't get them to leave. We were like, they must be because I mean, you know, we're, there were demons that we got to leave, you know, and goats that we got to leave, but these two wouldn't leave. And then it turns out we were like, we got to see who this is. It was G Smith and Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live. And they were like, I think that's the greatest thing we've ever seen. You know, tripping their it, balls off. Probably. It was really theatrical. You know, I mean, Bruce was like, I would often describe it as like if Saturday Night Live was a band. <laughs> wow. You know, that's what it felt like. And he was Belushi. Oh, you my know, God. It yeah. was just out, like shot out of a that's cannon, right. you know. You know, I recently got into professional wrestling. Like, yeah. I don't know what happened. Literally, like a couple weeks ago, I was Dude. watching a UFC fight. And then afterwards, these two lady wrestlers came on and one of them had this ponytail like goes down the floor. She starts beating the other lady with Whoa. it. And I was like, for some reason, it just clicked. So then I got on YouTube and I just started yeah. in. And oh, my God, all this stuff that Bruce used to do on stage. I didn't know the proper reaction to it. There were all these wrestling moves, the front face rip. Yeah. The, the side headlock and the, you know, so like it yes. just, I was like, crap. oh man, I wish I had gotten into it because I would have known how to respond better. But I was 24. I didn't know, you know, he'd do the iron claw and right. he called Yanrico uh, Scott Abdullah the Butcher. I always thought it was Abdul the Butcher. Abdullah. And then I'm watching, you know, I'm like going down the rabbit hole during my history. Yeah. And I'm like, Abdullah the Butcher. It was Abdullah, <laughs> not Abdul. I was just like, God, he got tons. It just, and Bruce I love it now. Guys, too. Bruce knew most of those guys. Like he knew Abdullah. Um, like I asked him, I can't remember what it was. Really? We were talking wrestling one day or something. Because I mean, I'm like, yeah, I was never really into it. I knew enough about it, but a little bit. And I was like, whatever happened to Abdullah the Butcher? Because I remember him as a kid. And Bruce yeah. said, oh, he's running a fish restaurant up in Buckhead. <laughs> like, that's where I have lunch on Thursdays, you know? <laughs> See, here's my, here's my premonition slash hope dream that I'm going to be pouring back through these old wrestling videos on YouTube. And then there he is. <laughs> There's going to be Bruce. I'll be like... Now we hit painter. And I would send it to my friends and be like, I found it. I found Bruce doing the wrestling. Cause see, Mike, you know, he did what was that club Jerry Farber owned, Jerry, in the, the comedy club in Atlanta? Not punchline. Uh, I think wasn't was it called the punchline? Was it might have been the punchline. I remember the punchline because we went there a few times. I didn't know who owned it. So that there's, this, there's this comedian Jerry Farber that was, mm. you know, I guess he got big enough yeah. locally or whatever to open his own comedy club. It was one of the spots, and Bruce would go there. Bruce was definitely more in the Andy Kaufman yes. vein. Like, it's yeah. totally fine with everyone being completely uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yes. So. But this whole side of him, the um, the professional wrestling, the stand-up comedian, 
that whole thing. Like he had the sports guy, he has the music guy, he has the base, you know, the like yeah. the baseball thing, and he has um, the the stand up comedian slash professional wrestling manager. I guess he was a manager, right? Yeah, he was like a wrestling manager and the actor guy too. He had all these different uh, parts. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like all those go together because. Mm-hmm. Um, the comedian, the professional wrestling, the acting—you know, like it's yeah. all—it's in the non the non musical category. Yeah. But he was fully comfortable there. I mean, he went to a, a military, what Gordon Military Academy yeah. on a golf scholarship. Yeah, like you know, there's just—he's always yeah. crossing these worlds. It's great. You know, like, it's beautiful. I think when he was that age, I think at that time that he was sent to Gordon, you know, I think his thoughts were. Well, I could either be a golfer or a wrestler. You know, I mean, I don't think he really, there wasn't much else that was interesting him because he hadn't gotten into like music yet. And it had just before he had gotten into playing with Harold Kelling and those guys. Um, and, you know, and that's the thing, you know, if there was, if Bruce had a mentor when he was a kid, you got to mention it's Harold Kelling. He's yeah. the late great guitarist, Harold yeah. Kelling, who was a, uh, co-founder of the Grease Band with Bruce and Glenn Phillips. And and, uh, and they were, you know, but Harold was a guy who loved playing Ventures type of music and, you know, that kind of instrumental guitar music and called Bruce on stage one day, essentially said, I need you, you know, come play this gig with us or get up on here and sing. And, and Bruce got, he, that was when he just realized, I think, well, I don't have to be a golfer or a wrestler. I could do this for a living. <laughs> That's pretty wild. Harold Kelling, to me, is like the Trey Anastasio. Yeah. Of, cool. You know, of, of, but he didn't He didn't sing. Right. Yeah. You got to, people, <laughs> comes the time, fans, oh, go yeah. listen to music to eat. I think the whole thing is on uh, YouTube now. Mm-hmm. Like yes, you have to hear this album. How you do not it. realize what a genius that this came out of the South in 1969. It's nuts. It's nuts. You just it's it's like if Fish and Sun Ra, yeah, and like some old bluegrass guy and some old Delta blues guy got mashed together in clay and then made into this. It's it's just and Zappa, yeah, and it's, it's just like and it's, so incredible. And to really, truth be known, for that record, and I recommend for um, if anybody wants to really get in, dive into the Grease Band, there's a great article by uh, Jesse Jarno. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's on Aquarium Drunkard. Aquarium and, Drunkard, and it's yeah. uh, got a great. Uh, this is it's like exhaustive, and if anybody ever does a book about. The Grease Band, it's got to be him. I told him that. Anyway, that story came out after I had turned in my manuscript, but I wrote him, I said, dude, I wish so much this story because that would have been my chief source for that chapter, man. Because it's the best thing I've read about the Grease Band. And um, Remember the gun? The guy pulls a gun on him because this guy details his first gigs. Yes, you know every gig. And wasn't that, was that Claremont Lounge? Or was that the... no, the place you mentioned earlier. It was the uh, Poison Apple Room. It was okay. The, they go to the Poison Apple Room. And this guy says, uh, <laughs> basically, he he says, um, says, why don't you guys play some James Brown? And the guy said, well, we don't have, we don't play any James Brown. It's not in our repertoire. 
And he says, and he pulls out a gun. He says, I said, play James Brown, motherfuckers. And Bruce like turns around and says, okay, popcorn in three, one, two. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I honestly think like when aliens come. Yes. And I can actually get one sitting down and be like, so I got a couple of questions. couple questions. Platorum, Spatong. Um, Brayto Ganib, ringing any bells? <laughs> Brayto Ganib, universal peace or canoeist? I knew it! We're gonna go. Right. We finally you found know, the leader. We found the leader. waiting on you. And the next thing, once you do that, then they're going to ask you, all right, where is he? Where is he? I know if there's ever like a code... And you have to get into whatever the spaceship or to let you into some. I'm just gonna go. <laughs> I know it. A A five eleven B N eight. A five eleven B N eight. It's the key to something. I don't know what it is, but I'm never forgetting it. <laughs> what about this thirty one? What about the story of 31? the thirty one thing? Is you know, you were talking about how he had this gift for like dealing with drunk people, which he did. He would toy with people, but he also 31 was a code for us, for people. Like if someone was drunk or just being too much of a fanboy or whatever, if things were going wrong and you were like, I need to get out of here. He would say, use 31 in a sentence. Like if you see me walking by and go, you know, Hey man, uh, we got 31 minutes before we got to do it. And then he would come rescue you and get the person out of there or or make an excuse for you to leave or whatever. So that was his thing about 31, which was very helpful. That's that's a beautiful thing, Oteal, that that passed on from band to band. I mean, like in other words, the the guys after you had 31 as well, uh, Oh, yeah. Joseph Patrick Moore was telling me that this is a weird story. But after Bruce had passed away, like I'm talking two days, maybe three days, Joseph had a gig in Atlanta, uh, like at the Cobb Energy Center. And he went and played the show. And when he came back to his hotel, um, you know, he's he uh, the the um, microwave in the hotel was set to thirty one. (laughs) <laughs> he sees 31 and he's like, holy, because he was already a little heavy headed and hard yeah. to get a Bruce because he had missed the last show. And he was like, he was going to have lunch with Bruce and all the yeah. 31. Oh, man, that takes me back. And he, goes, he goes into his bedroom to, to where the, the clock is, the little alarm clock. And first, I have to say, Joseph's nickname was 11. It was 11 because his birthday was October 1st. And Bruce named him 11, like the first time he met him. Now on, you're 11. And so he goes, he sits down, and what does the clock say? 11, 11. Yeah, Joseph. 11, 31. 11, 11. 11, 11. That's my manager's uh, management company name. That's his magic number is 11, 11. He lost it. And mine's 12, 12. Really? That's nuts. That's how I knew he was the guy. I was like... 11, 11, and 12, 12, I think. Isn't that something? Wow. Did the sixes, do the sixes follow you? Uh, you know what? Sixes kind of follow me partly because I notice them more, and it seems like yeah. they happen more. And it also, here's the other thing about six. It's always been important to me. When I was a kid and I played ball, my, one of my favorite numbers to wear was six. It was Stan Musial's mm. number. 
Who was who was uh, uh, Bruce's favorite baseball player? <laughs> I was going to say, I'm sure Bruce Stan knew Musial. it. was Stan. I mean, all this before I knew Bruce. All of this stuff. It was like it's just connections. Weird. Yeah, stuff. <laughs> I've said so many people now are hooked into the sixes. Even my wife is finding like, yeah, it's a thing. Like, yeah, it's, they're everywhere. It's legit. It, yeah. Someone sent me. Uh, Deborah, astrologer that I use that actually was trained by him and Todd. She sent me this whole long thing about six being the the first perfect numbers or the something that has all these properties. I was like, did he ever tell you the story of the sixes? The story that I heard of the sixes was a lot like the version that they have Harold telling some of in the movie where they were, uh, they're driving along, um, you know, in, in the van, in a van or a car, and I think yeah. they're on the way back from New York, maybe. But yes, that's what I heard. Are they in South Carolina when it happened? I don't remember. I just remember it was like they went into the Twilight Zone. Yeah, it was like they went to the Bermuda Triangle all of a sudden, but on land, it's all crazy shit. All this crazy six related stuff. Like, June 6, 1966. That's right? it. It happened June 6. So even wow. before the band, when him and Harold were just hanging out together with the uh, four of nine, his Bruce's first band uh, with, with Harold uh, was the four of nine. And they would, you know, they would go up to New York on odd trips yeah. and just check out the music. They were young, you know, they could do it and sleep on somebody's floor. They had a great time. And on the way back from one of them, um, I think it was on the way back. They had this situation where, you know, they saw like people on a hill, uh, and Harold remembered it almost like uh, he says, you know, it reminded me of what he saw later in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. And then uh, this, you know, object kind of flying over the car, and the and the um, the uh, glove compartment opening up, and all of these bank notes coming out, like from a bank book, just come like the wind gets them and they're yeah. coming out, and they all have sixes on them. I mean, it was Whoa. all this weird. Dude, it's crazy. I tried to get him to tell it at uh, Roots Rock Revival, this music camp that we have, that we do in the Catskills every year. I just got back from it. And uh, he declined to do it at that time. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to hear it again, actually, to get, uh, yeah. as an older person, to like, you know, like remember these details. Yes. But it, it was really like what it – what it seemed like is um, some guys driving back that all of a sudden just drove into an extremely bad trip with some dark, scary wow. characters and very, uh, you know, the Stanley Krippner, Mike, like anomalous, full on anomalous yeah, experience, yeah. but multiple people experiencing it at the same time. It's not like just the DMT got released in Bruce's brain and he just flipped out like yeah. right. they all right. saw it. Wow. Right. The same right. shit. And it was out and not Harold, positive. Um, you know? <laughs> get a yeah. chance, uh, Mike, if you haven't seen uh, the movie Basically Frightened. Gotta like, see it, man. Check yeah. it out. It's available like on Amazon or most places, you know, that you can rent movies and whatever. It's there or you can buy it like on eBay, whatever. But it's there is a scene where Harold is telling that story. And with what's interesting is it's juxtaposed between – Harold will tell a little part and Bruce will tell a little part. And, um, you know, it, I know there's deeper meaning to it. And I, you know, in yeah. the, I don't get too much into it because there's just, 
one of the problems that I had with writing this was it's to, it's so short. I had had so much that um, I had written and I got down to, there were like two or three months left before I had to turn it in. I had already extended my deadline, you know, with some excuse or another. Might've been the stroke, I don't know. But but I told the guy, it was like, uh, I said, listen, my birthday is September 26th. That's when I want to turn it in. And this was like June or something, July. And uh, I said, by the way, I'm up to 75,000 words. I agreed to do, to do 70. Is that, you know, is that, to, you know, and I still have four chapters left to write and, a, and an introduction, you know, that kind of thing. And the guy's like, yeah, that's going to kill us pretty much. We can't, we can't turn it in a 90,000, 100,000 word book. If you can keep it at 75. So I had to do some serious cutting and uh. while I'm still writing. So I'm writing my ass off. And I got my daughter, God bless my daughter, Samantha Safin. She, I said, would you mind cutting these previous 15, whatever many chapters it was? Because I got you covered, daddy-o. And she did, man. She cut out a lot of stuff. She was heartless, but she also was heartful. You know, she also yeah. kept the important parts, made sure that things linked up. But Can you I, put it all out later, like Aquarium Drunkard or something? Just you know like what? this compendium. Because <laughs> there's so many sides and layers to him yeah. that you kind of need – all of it, like the movie can't cover it all. One book can't cover it all. Like the aquarium drunkard can't cover it all. Like it needs, I don't know. I just, it's endless. I've, God, how, how long have we been on? Do we, yeah. It's a, it's a, uh, it's we could go for like hours. <laughs> I've still got other stuff. I'm like, oh, remember this? Remember that? Yes, but, I know. Me too. Yeah, man. Seriously, thank you so much. I want to later on get a huge group together. Like have many Zoom windows of all these people that played with the Colonel, and and have a you know no time limit. Like we'll we'll edit and do whatever, but like let's really yeah Bruce get off. the different sides because there's you know you see it kind of in in, in that movie and yeah. with your book too the people they're they're speaking about it yeah. firsthand. It's really it's really unbelievable the amount of decades that he had interactions with all these people from like Duke Ellington's son to Hank Aaron to it's crazy. The gifts. Yeah. And he, gets, he left all these people like O'Teal uh, with gifts. All the, all the people I know who, who played with Bruce, um, at least almost all of them, I should say 99.82% of them have got these gifts. They feel yeah. it. I mean, and they, they recognize it, they know it, whatever, but they feel it. Sometimes it's unconscious, but it's there. There's this gift. Yeah. I've heard this from old timers who say, you know, every time I set foot on a stage, uh, Jimmy Dormier, right, who's played music forever in, in Nashville. Yeah. And he's like, uh, he played music forever until he played with Bruce that one year or so. And he says, Nets changed me. Every time I set foot on a stage now, I'm looking at things a different way. He's, it's awesome. You know, he's a catalyst. He's a catalyst. Mm. He a really, uh, and he just, yeah. God bless him because he, he didn't he sparks. have to. Yeah, yeah. God, well, I'm so glad. I just, as a, as a music lover, as a person who likes to, who's really good at, you know, changing the volume and all that, I'm a big fan. So all I can say is, you know, thanks a lot, Bruce, man. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Oh, That's really? what I say. That's what I say. Well, we'll have you back when we do the big Colonel Bruce uh, like you know, multi-zoom. Nice yeah, Bruce Palooza. Yes. Right. 
it's really great to hang out with you guys. I appreciate it. It's an you honor too, to have man. you. Absolutely. And I'm sorry I didn't get in touch with you for the book I had. Okay. You know, the Yo, kids. No, no, it's totally okay, OT. Listen, it's no worries and no uh, no hard feelings either. It was just so, like I said, at some point I had so many people that was like, how do I fit this guy in? You know, but I got to get this guy in. That's Bruce's brother, whatever. You know, I had, it was just, and I never even said, um, for, for the few people who will want to know that the name of the book is The Music and Mythocracy yes. of Colonel Bruce Hampton, a basically true biography. And there's meaning behind all of that. And so um, that's the name of the book. And you, you know, it. of Georgia Press, a uh, fine uh, publisher published it. And it's important that they published it because that's where Bruce's yeah. grandfather was the football coach. That's nice. Perfect. Nice. It all comes together. It is. It's like he got he got his book published by University of Georgia Press and he had his gig at the Fox. You know, he he canceled one of our gigs. So because Bobby Blue Bland was playing the Fox. Really? And he said if you're not at the gig, you're fired. <laughs> I was like, "Wow, we need this money." So this is like really, and it was a life changing gig. Yeah. So that Fox was like, you know, that was the spot, man. Yeah. So yeah, he he did it for sure, man. Uh, thank you so much, brother. And uh, wow. All right. We could go on forever. This is <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, guys. Osiris. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.